Hi, I'm Kate, and I'm a very grateful member of the Al-Anon Fellowship from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I've never been to Kentucky before, but I have to tell you that this is an incredible privilege, and already today I've been given so much love and so much laughter and reminded that this is just an extended family reunion. I uh, borrowed from the literature table back there this book, From Survival to Recovery, and to be completely honest, I've owned this book probably 15 years, and I've only ever read two things, one of which I'm going to share with you now. What was it like growing up in an alcoholic home? It was a constant nagging fear that never went away, fear of rejection, fear of the unknown, fear of being known. It was lonely. It was wanting so desperately to be a part, yet pushing people so far away that I couldn't possibly be connected. It was isolating myself, and then being the outsider looking in and never fitting in. I was often ashamed. I was afraid to lose the only people who said they loved me. I was afraid they wouldn't come back, and then I was afraid they would. It was confusing. People said that they loved me, and then they hurt me. In my gut, I knew something was wrong, but I was told I overreacted or that I was too sensitive. So I learned not to trust my instincts. It was being needy. It was being convinced that I was unloved and unlovable. It was needing to hear over and over, you're wonderful, and yet never believing it. I always needed to hear it again, and it was still not enough. It was feeling that I was not enough. It was having to do for others so that I could earn their love, and yet feeling that what I gave was never enough. It was about trust. It was being told that I didn't see what I just saw and believing other people instead of believing my own eyes. It was never being able to trust anyone, not even myself, because my whole life was based on pretense and denial of reality. I didn't even know how I felt about it. I realized I forgot something. So bear with me. I'm going to do a quick prayer just to make sure that I'm actually in the room with you. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be of service to you and my fellows. Help me to set aside everything that I know and everything I think I know about myself, you, the people in this room, and my purpose for being here. Please help me to remember that I am an agent of your will rather than my own and make it impossible for me to get in your So my home was very much like that reading. Um, I grew up, grew up in a very small family with very large personalities. And I was raised along with my older brothers by a mom who was a passionate, um, exciting, fun-loving, um, animated alcoholic and drug addict who... Um, truly believed that she was doing something better than her own alcoholic parents by exposing her kids to drugs at an early age. Um, my brothers both dealt drugs for her at different times. She was furious at them um, when she was called into the principal's office because she had told them not to deal with school. Um, <laughs> and uh, to this day, I joke with my family that I'm the black sheep of the family because for some reason the alcoholism just didn't take. And it was encouraged. 
it was what we did together. It was how we bonded. And I remember at a very small age being very confused by these very intense, passionate, into the wee hours of the morning conversations that we'd have while somebody was usually on acid, and how nobody would remember it the next morning, or that sense of connection and intimacy and closeness would just be gone. Um, one of my most vivid memories is at about 10 years old, my mom was getting high with my brothers. And the joint was passed around the room, and it was passed to me. And um, I didn't take any. And I passed it to the next person. And my mom's observation was, isn't she adorable? It's a phase. She'll grow out of it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm at a loss to explain why I'm not in the other fellowship. Um, near as I can tell, I got the recessive gene for sobriety from my dad. Um, you know, it just never solved any of my problems. Um, but I did love that a certain amount of prestige came from fa having a family like mine. And part of that was our own need to believe that we were better than everybody else. And that was a belief that we invested a lot of time and energy um, going over with each other and validating for each other of people who didn't do this, people who didn't party the way my family partied, people who didn't feel that um, stealing was a valid solution to get your needs met, simply didn't know how to live. And they were uptight and they were the problem. And I was very much raised um, within a sense of entitlement that Basically, we were always sort of on the fringe of society, and I grew up believing that that was where I would remain, that there were certain things that I would never attain that would never be mine, and that anybody who had more than me probably owed me a little piece of what they had. So I believed that. I believed that there was something exciting about um, the level of the danger that was in my home, and part of it is that I always really wanted to be a badass. And um, I'm, you know, both the youngest person in my family and physically the smallest. And I could never out-intimidate or threaten or shout um, any of them. But I loved having the backup. And I loved that my brothers, when I was being intimidated on the playground, would show up with their shaved heads and tattoos, ready to pound whoever had, you know, looked at me crosswise. There was a great sense of power in that. And I loved sort of this, like, you haven't seen what I've seen type thing. And it's actually been something that has uh, been a journey for me in my recovery is being willing to set that down. Uh, I have continued within Al-Anon to date several sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, the fact that they were sober did not actually improve the quality of our relationship very much. And it also did not um, in any ways keep my insanity in check. So I have great fun when my sponsees are like, I just need to get me a sober one. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But <laughs> it works for some. It hasn't been very successful in my life. But, you know, within that, I have um, still been very much drawn to the danger of, you know, if you've done time, if you've got tattoos up one arm and down the other, um, and have a history of violence, you know, it's love at first sight. <laughs> and it has been very difficult for me to, um, to choose safety. There's something about that 
that sounds lame. And I feel like I have to almost apologize for it. And that came up to me, up for me just recently, where I had to let um, a relationship go of somebody I loved dearly. But it wasn't safe. And it took me a long time of being out of that relationship to go to my sponsor and sort of shyly confess to her that I don't want to live in fear. You know, I don't want to ever have to be afraid of what's waiting for me when I go home. And I don't know what I expected her to say. I mean, it was obvious, you know, looking in her eyes that she thought that was a good plan. <laughs> but I have had um, enormous pride in the fact that I'm not easily shocked. Um, I was always... Um, I was always a geek, I was always a good kid, but the drug addicts loved me. And the drug addicts loved me even in high school, and I used to sum it up like this. Nothing shocked me, and I never wanted to share. So I was your best friend. I mean, if you were doing something you shouldn't be doing, and I was a great front person, because nobody would ever believe that we were in fact skipping class if you had me on board. So, you know, that has been a big thing for me to slowly let down. Uh, I came into Al-Anon when I was 17, and I'm 37 now. And I'm honestly sort of floored by that. It makes so much sense for me why I'm still here. I just wish there were more of us. I do have in my home group in Santa Fe a number of people who I've realized we've been walking this road, sharing our recovery with each other, pretending. And that's precious but there are a lot of people who have come and gone. And one of the things that I spent a lot of time thinking about is exactly that question of why am I still here. And I think it's an important thing to ask because what got me into Al-Anon is not what, what has kept me in, in Al-Anon. What got me into Al-Anon is that my brother OD'd, and he didn't die. He was going to be admitted into treatment, and this treatment center had this one, I don't remember what else they said, but they had this one brilliant idea, and they said, we will not take someone like him unless the whole family gets help. It's too hard. His chances are already slim. They go down to nothing if you guys don't get some information. And uh, it was in the course of supporting my brother that my mom was confronted on her alcoholism. She celebrated um, 19 years clean and sober this past month. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just going to throw something out about that. To me, the fact that my mother got sober is merely the beginning of the miracle. And I am obnoxious enough to remind her of that, that if she was just sober, frankly, it wouldn't be enough. It would be nice. It would be better than she was. But what has enabled my mom and I to be really ridiculously close. Uh, we live 15 minutes away from each other. I had a really good day at work yesterday, and I called her on my way home, and we talked for three hours. <laughs> and not because we hadn't seen each other in a while. Um, but what makes that possible is two things. One is we actually sat down in the early days of recovery and went, okay, everything about this relationship is sick. However, I genuinely love you and enjoy spending time with you. Let's see if we can change all of that and hold on to the love and the enjoyment. 
and it was not easy, and we had um, a bumpy road at times. But what I can say about my mom today is that she has a willingness in her program to go deeper and to be ever more accountable over time. And that is so much more than just himself. And it challenges me to do the same. So um, I have a huge debt of gratitude to Alcoholics Anonymous, not just for giving us, not just for giving me and my mom back, but for giving us the steps. And frankly, a lot of my best material comes from AA speakers over the years who I've been privileged to listen to. I've gone to a lot of um, open AA meetings, and part of that is somehow early on in this program, I knew I was dying. I was convinced of it. And I hear that sometimes in open AA meetings more than I now and on. The need to, especially over time, do more, not less. So what keeps me in Al-Anon is I have come to believe for myself that I am actually different from the people who don't need Al-Anon. And I don't know whether science will ever locate where that difference lies. But the difference for me is that my thinking and my reactions to certain situations is fundamentally different. Whenever life gets busy and I'm unable to go to meetings for a while, I can feel that old thinking come back, comes back. And the first thing that starts to happen is I start to believe the voices that are still there. And they're the voices that say, they're never going to be enough. Why do you keep trying? Why do you keep expecting it to be different? Why do you think you deserve any better than this? Yeah, I know they said they liked you, but they were just putting up with you. Um, and I start to believe it again. I did something for me very shocking um, about two weeks ago. I bought myself a, trip, a ticket to Greece. I'm very excited. I've been talking about going on a trip that wasn't about family or program for a couple of years. And I'm actually in a position now where I can do it and I won't you know, break the bank. But I had to call someone in Al-Anon immediately after buying that ticket and go, please tell me I won't be punished. And I have a stable of friends in this program who I can call in a moment like that who will remind me, God loves you. You are his precious child. You have worked hard. You can take the time off. And God wants you to pursue your dreams. That's God's will. Good to know. Um, when I was growing up, I was told two things by my mom. Um, she had great fantasies of running away from home, and she was very vocal about them. And she would say if she didn't have a child still living at home, she could just get away and be free. And life would be better somewhere else, and she could start over, and it would be good. And the other thing she would tell me is, honey, if it wasn't for you, I would have committed suicide years ago. And so I got it. Okay, mom wants to leave. I'm a burden. But I'm saving her. And so long as I can keep saving her, mom will stay. So I got very good at three, four, five, ten years old at saying, Mom, please don't go. I know it hurts, but it's not always this bad. And I promise you it's going to get better. And I used to do a lot of outreach in the schools in Santa Fe, and I always did it with Alcoholics Anonymous and Alamont together. And I used to like to play with the kids. Uh, we'd go to 
to high schools and middle schools in Santa Fe, and we'd play, you know, pick the drunk, see if you can spot them. <laughs> and, uh, but I was always flattered when they chose me. And, um, <laughs> but one of the things that happened in that process is I have a couple friends who got sober at 16 and 18, 19. And they would talk about the magic, and it wasn't always that first drink, but maybe that first drunk, where they were fundamentally transformed. And alcohol clearly did something to them that it had never done for me. And it made them smarter and taller and braver and beautiful. And, you know, they could just breathe. And they just didn't care about all the things that had them twisted up inside. And I would look at them and go, yeah, it never happened. But, you know... I had a friend at Al-Anon say to me, you know, I've realized something about alcoholics. She said, your average alcoholic, drinking or not, their attention really only, only extends about yay far. But every now and again, they look up from that, and it's like laser beams into your very soul. And that made me go, oh, yeah. That I recognized. That is a profound, life-altering life altering experience that I've had more than once. And my personal theory is that it started when my mom looked at me and said, Honey, if it wasn't for you, I would have committed suicide years ago. And I believed it. And I knew I had a purpose. And I thought, I, I can do that. Nothing else here is to do. So it's very easy for me to fall in love with the back of a man's head. The more he tries to leave, the more I try to convince him to stay. You know, and there are days where I don't know if I'll do it any better next time. Um, quite honestly, I'm sort of the Al-Anon version of a binge drinker. I have long periods of being single. I sometimes think that God is using me to carry the message that it is, in fact, possible to enjoy your own company, um, to travel on your own, um, to have fun. I actually prefer to travel on my own because other people always get hungry and tired at the wrong times. <laughs> you know, and I was telling Terry, I said, you know, sometimes, and someone else here I think may have heard me speak in South Carolina, and if so, you know, um, wow, what a difference a year makes. I've been really angry at God within Al-Anon. And part of that is uh, my oldest brother passed away from alcoholism three years ago. And as much as my relationship with my mother is a miracle, the bigger miracle is my relationship with Tim. Tim is my oldest brother, and I grew up afraid of both him and my other brother. And I remember once hearing Tim talk to a friend of his saying, yeah, I have a horrible temper, but Kate knows I don't mean it which was actually entirely new information. <laughs> and I was really glad that I overheard it, because I kind of filed it back there, like, do you mean this is an act? Because I actually believe that the only reason my head hadn't been pushed through a wall is because I had a checklist of when that was going down, when somebody couldn't remember that they'd used all their staff or where they'd placed their wallet or their keys or spent their last money. I thought the fact that I knew to get out of the line of traffic to avert my gaze, make sure that I'm not smiling nervously, and have a ready answer for any question that gets asked. I thought that's why I hadn't been hit yet. It was totally news to me that he had no intention of following through. What happened in Al-Anon is very slowly, actually 
couple things happen. One of the best things that happened in our relationship is she stopped speaking to her mother. Now, that was painful for her. <laughs> and yet she was amazing. Part of her program around it is um, she had forced him to listen to her amends when he wasn't ready. And years later, when he stopped talking to her over something relatively minor, she just kept saying, you know, he has good reasons for being mad at me. He's chosen to be mad over this. But, but it's his right. You know, he has a good reason. You know, it's, it's his time. He gets to be mad. And what I did, and I've been working on it for a couple of years, very actively in Al-Anon, is we used to do, um, I know, I, I think the technical term for it is triangulation, but I call it sort of relating by proxy. And what would happen is I would long for this sense of togetherness and closeness and connectedness with my family, and yet it was never actually necessary because if my brother got arrested, lost a job, beat up his girlfriend, I heard long before I ever saw him. So there was no need for us to actually communicate because I had all the facts and an opinion about them. So one of the things that I started actively trying to do, and it's something that I drill into my sponsees, is your relationship with each individual in your life is its own thing. And no one, and no one else gets a vote. No one else gets to, you know, sort of comment on how it's supposed to be. And you treat people based on how they treat you, and you communicate directly. And I started doing this with my mom, like, okay, we're going to only talk about the people who are in the room. So at first we were afraid that, you know, we'd wind up with nothing to talk about. Obviously that was not the case. Um, and I started, you know, making a direct effort to, like, call my brother every once in a while. And what was amazing is something started to happen where, for the first time, he realized that I wasn't just a junior varsity mom. Because I was so stuck to my mom's hip growing up that I would treat my older brothers like I was their big sister. And, you know, and you're disappointing mom and you're upsetting her and what are you going to do with your life? And if I didn't outright say it, it was coming off of me in waves. So I started calling my brother and we would just visit. It was very rarely profound. It was, you know, what movies have you seen? What music are you listening to? We would both talk about how much we were, you know, how much it sucked working in the service industry. And, you know, and that was, and I would do it like once a month. I was thinking of you. Sometimes he'd been drinking, and when he started to repeat himself, I wouldn't say, I have to get off the phone now because you've been drinking and it upsets me. I would say, you know, this has been lovely, but I've got to go. And I'll talk to you again soon. And I love you. And the same is uh, what was amazing is this man who never entered a 12-step program of any kind, um, never even stuck his head through the door. The closest he came is uh, the parking lot, uh, parking lot, the local recovery club we have in Santa Fe. Um, he was actually looking for my mom. And so many people mistook him for my other brother that he, like, never did that again. And uh, but one of the things that would happen is sometimes, you know, he couldn't help himself and he'd start talking about, like, well, you know, the reason I'm not talking to mom is, and she really hurt me when, she really upset me, and I never told him, you know, I, I don't want to hear it. I would just say, you know what, this has been lovely, but i got to go. And I'll talk to you again soon. And I'll... What was amazing about that is when that was the reason for me that I was getting off the phone, 
it never failed that within five to ten minutes later, I'd get a call from him going, honey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you in the middle. It has nothing to do with you, and you don't have to choose. So we started building a relationship, and the true miracle for me, and where I think Al-Anon gets really interesting, is one, a relationship with somebody who has no interest in doing their life differently can still improve. I don't usually talk about what I do professionally in my home group because I don't want people bringing me their problems. And I think it's a really important principle of Al-Anon that we are not, um, that our roles on the outside world get left behind, and that's not who we are within Al-Anon. But I often bring it up when I'm speaking, and I bring it up because to me it is such a measure of how far God can bring you. And I'm an attorney. And I grew up wanting to be a criminal. <laughs> and I am so very glad that I had 14, 13 years in Al-Anon before I went to law school so that by the time they were talking about the honor code, code and the oath that I was going to have to take and the fact that um, I have to be that person in all, um, in all my affairs, None of that was new information, that I'd already had intensive training on what rigorous honesty looked like. But part of what happened is when I was first contemplating law school, um, I called my brother when I was sitting in the parking lot just to tour the place. And I confessed to him that I was terrified. And I kind of did, did it dismissively. I said, you know, I mean, I'm just going and taking a tour, like no commitment. I'll probably decide they're jerks and I want nothing to do with it. But you know, I want to go at least investigate. And he said, honey, this is the first change of a potentially profound one. Of course it's terrifying. And I loved him for understanding that. And he uh, took me out to eat when I got accepted and bragged about me like the father I always wanted and who I had at one point in my life actually mistaken him for. I grew up without a dad, and when I was two years old and he was 11, I thought he must be my dad because he was the oldest man I saw around. <laughs> and he very carefully explained to me that he was my big brother. But he passed away before he got to see me graduate. And I was really mad about that for a long time. But my last conversation with my brother, I was ratting myself out. And I was confessing about what an overachiever I can still be and how given half an opportunity, I'll still make some assignment about the summation of my entire worth as a human being, all wrapped up in one paper. And that I'll go without food or sleep if it feels like that much is writing on it. I just, you know, figured he'd get a laugh out of it. And what he said to me is, I'm a little bit envious of you. Because there are things that I want in my life that I'm unwilling to work for. And I see you doing it. And I'm so proud of you that you do. But I'm also envious. And there was no mean-spiritedness in it. And it was so honest and from his heart. So I still talk to my brother regularly. Sometimes I ask, ask him to intercede. And if you have any more information now than you used to or any more pull. <laughs> um, and it's been a 
been hard. It's been hard because um, I have another brother who I still make bigger than God on a regular basis. And I've worked the steps several times. And when my other brother is mad, I can still feel four years old and unsafe and like I can't possibly stand up to him. And he lives in California, and sometimes all it takes is a bad day on Facebook. And I have um, gone to people in Al-Anon, and they've reminded me, you know, you need a God bigger than your brother. And I go, I know. And I literally do a visualization because my brother is six feet tall, and, uh, and he always seems bigger to me. And so I picture him, and then I just picture something bigger than that to remind myself, right, he's just who he is. And one of the things that, you know, breaks my heart is that so far I don't have that same healing in my relationship with my brother, Pat, that I did with him before he passed away. Um, I did go to visit him in California. One of the hardest things I had to do this year is I used to get my nephews one day a week for five years. Absolutely the best part of my week. I built my life around it. I only worked for um, attorneys who, when I explained to them that Thursdays are sacred and this is why, if they understood that that was real and important, I can work with you. It kept me sane throughout law school. I would pick up my nephews from school, take them over to my mom's house. We had a whole routine, put them to bed, do getting them ready for school the next morning. And no matter what else was going on in their lives or mine, that was something that always happened. And I used to sort of say, talking to my sponsor, one of these days, I'm really going to have to get honest in my heart of hearts about the fact that they're not my kids. Because in the darkness of the night and the secret of my own soul, oh, thank you. <laughs> I always forget I'm going to need tissues. <laughs> so, you know, I've thought to think of them as my babies. And then my brother announced in February of this year that he was taking his family to California. And it was announced. We were not consulted. <laughs> so I just kind of looked up and went, got it. Not my kids. Okay. And it continues to be one of my ongoing battles with God in terms of truly trusting that God has to have them. Not that I have any power over their lives or to do anything different, but there's some satisfaction about at least being able to do the drive-by. And I can't do that. And I don't always hear from them when I want to hear from them. And I have to talk to people in Al-Anon when my imagination gets the best of me. And I have to trust that those kids know that I love them. And I send them care packages every few weeks. Because I know that getting the mail when you're a kid is, you know, it's like Santa came to visit. But I was talking about why I was mad at God. <laughs> so the reason I was mad at God is because I really was upset about the loss of my brother. Um, I had a relationship that I got into shortly after my brother died, and I thought that was my consolation prize for losing Tim. So when I had to lose the relationship, too, I really felt messed with. I took it very personally. It didn't seem fair. Um, and I sat in Al-Anon meetings not happy to be there. 
and I used to draw during the meeting because I thought I got to I got to do something to keep myself in the chair for the full sixty minutes. And I remember this one moment where I was in a meeting and the topic was hope, and I am challenging in my own mind every single thing this person's saying. Must be nice. I don't have any hope. Nope. Don't got it. Well, yeah, la di da. Must be nice for you. I mean, I just, you know, I was just uh, going, and this little voice went, "But you're here." And I realized, yeah, that's my hope. I'm here. I'm here, even though it feels like a bad idea today. I'm here, even though I don't want to be touched and I can barely make eye contact. And I just had to show up like that. And every once in a while, somebody would ask me to, you know, be the opening chair, and I'd be like, really? <laughs> and I would tell the truth. And it was important for me to tell the truth about not wanting to be there but needing it. I have an incredible ability to be angry at God and pray at the same time. I don't worry too much about being consistent. So I will tell God, I don't like you, I don't trust you, I don't understand you, I don't think I want you anywhere near my life, but I will not be able to show up for work today if you don't do it for me. <laughs> and it works. Um, my sponsor occasionally encourages me to not blame God for everything that happens in my life that I don't like, but I think if anybody is going to be blamed, and I do still seem to feel the need to blame something or someone, God can take it. Probably not going to own former old men's later. But the amazing thing is how very good my life is. I love um, who I am. I love what I do. I realized in a meeting uh, just about a month ago, they were talking about uh, people-pleasing. My sponsor actually doesn't let me use that term. She says it's ass-kissing. It has absolutely nothing to do with pleasing people. <laughs> but gotcha. You're right. I was really always either trying to get you to shut up and go away or to love me and keep me forever. Um, really had nothing to do with making your pain any less. And I was sitting in that meeting, and I realized that um, I'm really not a people pleaser today. It doesn't drive me. And that's not to say that I don't ever consider how is this going to um, impact the other person. Uh, I, have, uh, I can be abrupt. I have um, a crude sense of humor sometimes, and I do sometimes have to go to my friends and go, do we know each other too well for that to be funny? And if so, I'm sorry. It wasn't meant to, you know, put you down or cut you down. And um, so I will, you know, I'm still sensitive to that. Um, I do still sometimes get afraid of my brother's reaction. You know, there have been things, and I now um, trust my gut. I don't always know why it's not a good day to call. Um, sometimes I don't call just because I can feel that my need, my need to be reassured, my need to be told that I'm loved is so up that I don't think I'm a safe person to be on the phone right then. What I do, I do a lot of... Uh, Comparing my experiences in Al-Anon with what I've observed in my friends who are sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know that anybody newly sober in AA has to be very careful of being around drinking. Hopefully after 5, 10, 15 years, it's not such a big deal, but they have to be sensitive to that. Of This is the place where I always picked up without thinking, before I even felt thirsty. 
you know, where suddenly I, you know, woke up not remembering how I got there or wound up in jail again, and I don't even remember ordering a drink. And I think as Al-Anon member, it is very important for me to identify what are those situations for me. And they tend to be things like calling my brother, you know, is this a genuine desire to say, hey, I love you and I'm thinking about you, or am I looking to get a need met? It has to do with um, practicing a resentment against somebody at work. You want to know another thing that I don't like about her? Let's just add it to the running tally. You know, that's me getting thirsty and, um, and you know, and agitated without knowing it, right? So I have to start listening to when I'm getting agitated. When am I going to... Um, behave in a way that is going to cause harm. I always tell my sponsors, you know, by the time that you're, um, you know, screaming at your husband, it's too late. You need to call me when you first realize um, what he's done wrong. <laughs> that takes years. And it's actually truly where I believe that I need God in my life is I do when I do it, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, I have been very undisciplined in my prayer and meditation lately. And it's weird because like a few years ago, I had it down. I was doing like my, you know, daily readers in the morning, doing a little journaling, okay, turning my day over to God. At night, I was doing a real quick inventory. How did I do today? Where did I fall short? I mean, it was just habitual. And it hasn't been habitual this year, and I've got no good excuse. I just haven't been doing it. But... Um, what I do when I do it, and it always makes my life better when I do it, is I ask God at the beginning of my day, help me to pause today. Because I don't pause naturally. That doesn't exist to me. Uh, I was in a relationship with a sober alcoholic when I first got my sponsor. And it was sort of the bottom after the bottom. Like, I think my first bottom was coming into Al-Anon and realizing at 17, Oh, my God, there's 17 years here of hurt, rage, fear, resentment that has never been acknowledged. And it all came up at once, uh, for which I'm very grateful because I knew, like, I, my, I physically could not contain the emotions. It was just too much. And so I really clung to Al-Anon. And it's gone. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> What was I talking about, Terry? Were you listening? Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> so glad somebody was listening. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, you know, so my first bottom in al was just that. I can't deal with this. My mom was very honest in her new sobriety, almost too honest, and she admitted to me that she had never gone grocery shopping without having a beer or a joint first, probably since the age of 10. So everything was new for her, overwhelming, scary, and making her irritated. So I knew I cannot go to this woman to show me how to show up for life. It is all too new to her. And so I clung to Alan initially just for that, some peace and a little bit of guidance. Got involved in my first serious relationship in my early 20s, and I suddenly became the very person who I grew up hating. I became somebody that when you didn't want to talk to me anymore and started walking away, got louder. I became somebody who was my boyfriend, who was also six feet at the time, 
would get up in his face, pull on his arm, and try to spin him around, going, you may not agree with me, but you will listen. And I honestly believed that if he walked away from me and didn't allow me to complete my thought and didn't see me, that I would die, that the ground would just open up and swallow me whole. And that's when I got my first sponsor, because what would happen in those moments is at some point I'd done some therapy, and I had some good information, or at least good language, that gave me absolutely no power in the situation. So I, we would have these ugly fights, and I'd be journaling later, and I would be like, I get it. I get that I have abandonment issues from the fact that my dad left when I was four weeks old, and I get that I've always been invisible and not um, appreciated and validated, and there's this deep you know, childhood need. But if I could just shut up. In those moments, if I could just not say it, maybe not ever, but just not then, not after he's put in an eight-hour workday and has already said, I'm tired and I just want to eat. You know, just, you know, can I just choose? And the truth is, is that moment never existed for me. And so all the work that I do in Al-Anon in terms, and I have a, a mini checklist that I do when I'm suddenly uncomfortable in my own skin again. And it's, when is the last time I talked to my sponsor and let her know what was really going on with me? Am I still going to my regular meetings? And am I not just showing up in those meetings? Am I letting them know what's really going on in my mind? Am I showing up for my service commitments or have other things become more important? Where am I in my step work? You know, do I even remember where I left that last fourth step? Can I find it again if I need to? I'm currently in an inventory that's taking me a year and a half. I'm not particularly proud of that fact, but it is what it is. Uh, and where am I in my prayer meditation? And inevitably, if I'm not okay, somewhere there, there's something I'm not doing. And it doesn't mean that I'm being punished for the fact that I failed to do those things, but I do know what my next right action is. My next right action is, oh, I should call my sponsor. I should make sure I get to that Saturday noon meeting today. Uh, maybe I should just spend five minutes in front of that inventory and see if maybe God will give me the power today to see a little more truth about myself. I have a very different approach to my step work today than I have in the past, which is odd because I'm still somewhat of a militant sponsor. And it's just really the only way I know how to do it. And it doesn't mean it's the right way, but when I'm working with somebody new, there are very specific things I require. But I also know that God's involved, and an honest desire to know God and to be known reaps rewards. I have a sponsor that took two years in our inventory, and I don't know why it took so long. I know she was being incredibly thorough, painfully thorough. I can say this because we've done her fifth step. <laughs> but what was amazing about doing that fifth step is that when she brought me all three spiral book notebooks. <laughs> and it took several days longer than I had calculated. What I saw was that there was tremendous power in her telling me again and again and again, whether it was the girl in third grade or the person in school with her or the person at the job 10 years ago or her husband, that she was going to the same places inside 
in every single one of those relationships. And it was so powerful one more time for me to be in that honored role of saying, that was never yours. That was never true. Are you willing to be shown how beautiful you really are? And so this inventory that I've been shipping away at for a year and a half, every once in a while I think maybe I just won't do it. And then I go, no, I suspect I'll finish it one of these days. And what I know is every time I sit down and I write a little more, I see a truth that I wasn't ready to see even a month earlier. So it is what it is. One of the things I'll just share with you, and because I can't tell, stand up here and not let you know what's going on with me currently. I have been obsessing lately about whether or not to become a mom. It is um, my greatest heartfelt wish. It is something I've always wanted. I have loved borrowing my nieces and nephews and my friends' children whenever they let me. And I'm in prayer right now about how to move forward in integrity with all the information I have and a program that is about not forcing solutions and uncovering God's will for me and how do I know it when I see it. And it is intense. It's intense because um, it's a very personal decision and I've gotten some wonderful support from friends and I've talked to some people who have really said, are you sure? <laughs> it can be a pretty rough road. And it's not a choice you get to take back. And I'm not sure, and it's not something I talk a lot about in my home group because it's too private and it's too small town. But it's one of those things that I absolutely trust that God will reveal to me. And my sponsor used to say this thing that I used to actually hear as a bit of a threat. I often hear what she says to me as a threat. <laughs> Either a threat or completely irrelevant is kind of the two extremes. Like she shares some things that I'm like, like one of her favorite lines for years was, be careful what you defend. Like, does that even sound like English? <laughs> I mean, I would just look at her and go, uh-huh, and go on, you know, explaining why, of course, I needed to defend myself. And now I realize, like, oh, if I know the truth of who I am, and I did realize in the course of doing the steps um, before that if I am required, which apparently I am by Al-Anon, to tell the truth of the fact that when I've been too afraid to ask for a raise, my solution has been to steal. Um, and to tell the truth about the fact that I like flirting with my friends' boyfriends because I need to be wanted by everyone. That I also have to tell the truth that I am one of the best friends you can ever hope to get. That I am truly loving, kind, smart, and easy on the eyes. <laughs> so, the thing my sponsor said more recently is, yeah, you can pray for an answer, but you have to want it. And that has always upset me because it implies to me that I have the power to block God's communications with me. And that freaks me out when I start to believe that my insanity or my disease or my unwillingness has the power to prevent God from acting in my life, and I'm God. And that's a very scary place to be. But I know what she means, and I've had it happen for me. Uh, the relationship that I had to let go of a few years ago was somebody who was having his very own, to his very soul, breakdown and rebuilding of himself. 
And it was very clear that he couldn't do that and still try to show up and be a boyfriend for me. And it was very clear that his desire to protect me was preventing him from getting the help that he needed and focusing on himself. And so we had to say goodbye to each other. And we didn't communicate at all for six months. And no sooner did I pass the bar exam than I got an email asking me how I was doing. And we communicated just for three days, and it was this incredible outpouring of love and, um, and how much, you know, we respect each other and cherish each other and still really would like to be with each other. And I went on a long walk after the first day or so of this, and I talk, I've always talked to myself, so it's been easy to just translate that into talking to God. I get nervous sometimes when people suddenly walk up behind me. It's like, oh, you heard that. But anyways, I was outside talking to God, and I said, I don't know if this is a mistake. It was really painful. I'm still only just now realizing how much it hurt me to watch somebody dance with his demons the way I was and how much I put my own life on hold one more time to try to hold the space for someone else that's going to be okay. So I don't know if I dare start up again as much as my heart wants this. And the prayer I said is, God, if this is a mistake and it's not the best for everybody involved, I really need you to tell me. And I'm willing to be told no. And by that night, I had my answer. And I said goodbye to this person that I haven't spoken to him So I know there's a difference when I take my problems to God and I go, I am even willing to hear the answer that I don't want. And tell me. I feel like I've talked well long enough. I really want to thank you for listening to me with so much love and patience. And I'm really glad that I get to just hang out and enjoy the rest of the weekend. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>